we're going to dig into the scripture here in a second. But I want to encourage you, um, tomorrow's Christmas, and then, um, and a lot of you will have the day after Christmas off, and you'll just sit around. And, um, and that's a good thing to take a break. But I would encourage you during the break to, um, to replay that song in your head over and over again and, and just ask the Lord, have I been making enough room for you? It's, it's one thing to do it on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, all that stuff. But if I've been making enough room for you, and then if you make any commitment in the year going forward, make it that. Make it to make more room for him. Not necessarily do more things, but make more room. Amen? And he will be faithful in the midst of all that. We're going to uh, read from the book of Isaiah again and um, proclamation of Jesus' birth and coming. And um, I'm just thankful that, that that God has had a plan, has a plan, will always have a plan. And it's geared towards us. Amen? It's geared towards you and towards me. And it's a plan of salvation. And he's still saving today. He's still redeeming today. He's still preparing the way for people today to know him. Amen? And I'm thankful for that on Christmas. So we have a lot to be thankful for. Hey, I just want to let everybody know, also, there's kids in the room. Well, don't clap yet. We haven't even started. Uh, but any of you that don't have kids, that the hairs on the back of your neck are starting to stand up, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, these babies crying. Um, we do this several times a year because we think it's good for, for kids to be in here um, every now and then. Amen? And, um, like, I just think it's good for families to be together every now and then. And, um, and we thought that would be a great thing this morning. So they won't bother me. Don't let them bother you. Parents, just chill out. They're kids. So I'm giving you permission. Don't yell at them over me. But, um, but if they make a little bit of noise, don't get all freaked out about it. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9. And, and uh, this is a beautiful actual poem that Isaiah has written about the birth of Christ. And so we're going to read chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Why don't you stand to your feet in honor of the word. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. A light has shone. And you've made it bright across the whole world, available. Available for everyone who will recognize it. And this time of year, Lord, we are are looking up to the 
to the origin of that light. So we say thank you this morning for the saving grace that came so long ago that we experienced today. We pray that it would come to its fullness in us so that others would experience it. Thank you for that grace, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Isaiah chapter 9 is not the same type of prophecy that we've dealt with before where there was a, where there was a fulfillment uh, in the Old Testament, but then a fulfillment yet to come. It's not that same pattern. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, there, there is no Old Testament fulfillment of this, of this prophecy. It doesn't exist. And if you read down through it, like bit by bit, you kind of start to understand that there's no way it could have been fulfilled in the Old Testament. A, a, a ruler whose kingdom never ends, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, all, the, all these things. That there was, there was no time in the Old Testament or since, by the way, where, where there has been no war or, or um, people weren't taking, you know, taking combat boots and just burning them and never having to use them again. It hasn't existed. And so when you, when you read Isaiah chapter 9, what you have to understand is that in Old Testament prophecy, there's not a, um, you say, yeah, but Chris, Jesus has come and, and, and the light of the world is here. But what's this thing about, what's this thing about no more war and ruling forever? Because it seems like the Old Testament prophets skipped a whole couple thousand years. Because since Jesus, the light has come into the world, but since Jesus, there's been a whole lot of war, there's been famine, there's been earthquakes, there's been all that stuff's increasing. And every time you turn on the news today, it's another war breaking out somewhere else, somebody dying, some, some catastrophe happening. Okay, so when you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, you realize that he's talking about the coming of Jesus as, as the Messiah, and then, and then there's a fast-forwarding of his rule never-ending, of, of a time where the second coming of Christ puts him on the throne forever. Amen? So it's in that light we, we look at this. We realize that... Um, that this is a very unique thing that Isaiah is talking about. He's not pointing to something that will happen after the Syrians. He's not pointing to something that will happen after the Babylonians. He's not pointing to something that will happen any time. The fulfillment of this, the, the whole fulfillment of this will be in the, re, the ultimate return of Christ. And so he uses some pretty neat language here. He says, but there will be no gloom for who has, was in anguish in the former time brought it to contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Anytime you start a portion of scripture with, with um, verse 1 starts in the ESV, which we read from every Sunday, starts with but... In other translations, it starts with nevertheless. It means that it's that what he just said in the previous writing, now he's not contradicting, but it's a, it's a transition to, okay, that, but now. So this goes in this vein of distress and deliverance that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Like there's a period of distress and a period of deliverance. And this is the way God works with his people. We, we, we disobey, we do our own thing. We, come on, you've done it before, right? I'm the only one here. Uh, you've been in distress some, and we talked about this last week. Uh, like if I'm honest, a lot of my distress is because of me. Merry Christmas. You're your own worst enemy. Matter of fact, this week, uh, uh, my wife has not heard me say this out loud before. It's always dangerous territory. Um, I was praying yesterday, uh, and I don't, I don't know when I was praying. I was probably doing something and praying because uh, a lot of times um, I'll be doing something and I'll be talking to God at the same time. So if I'm doing something, I'm not paying attention to you, leave me alone. I'm probably talking to God. 
And I felt like he said, Chris, you're being selfish. And I went, I deserve everything I'm getting. Oh, and there was a couple of attitudes I'd had over the past couple of weeks that I felt like he was saying, hey, the results that, that you're looking for are not coming because you're being selfish. And I, I just thought, well, that's, I mean, it's Christmas, Lord, can you ease up a little? Can we talk about the baby Jesus? I mean, like, you got to come heavy on me now. So what I started realizing was, now, if you looked at my life, you'd probably, you might say, oh, it looks like everything's cool and, and, and you got a good family and all that stuff. Beautiful, lovely, unbelievable wife, all that. Uh, and in the midst of that, a little bit of distress. Anybody ever been there before? Where on the outside, it looks like everything's fine. On the inside, you feel a little bit of distress. And, and what was happening recently is that I was going through this little thing. I don't know what was causing it, but I was thinking about me more than I was thinking about anything else. And, and I, and the, and God said, Hey, it's a, it's, you're the problem. You're the problem. So he said, you're being selfish. And then I went, but I want to go fishing. Um, which I still am, but that's, uh, he, he gave me permission after we talked a little bit. Um, ah, and, uh, so, so he said, so there was distress and then a pattern of deliverance. Do you, are you following me how this works? And, and so Isaiah is say, he starts out verse one, nevertheless. So there's this, there's this stress. Remember Isaiah's dealing with the time where the Assyrians, like, like his people are getting ready to become a vassal state to the Assyrians. They're going to pay tribute to him. Remember we talked about that. And and there's this distress. Chapter 9 comes in and he says, Nevertheless, a great light is shown to the people. So we're back to that distress, deliverance, distress, deliverance. And it works like that in every single one of our lives. A lot, sometimes it may not be you that causes it, but, so, but a lot of times it is. I'll just be honest. A lot of times it is. And so, so here over the last couple of weeks, it, uh, that's what I was dealing with. If you looked on the outside, everything probably looked fine. But in me, there was some turmoil. And I was like, God, I understand what you're doing. And he said, it's you. And I went, okay. You don't have to yell. And he went, oh, I do. To you, I have to yell all the time. The beautiful part about this deliverance, if you, if you do a little deeper reading, if you look into it a little bit, don't just skim over the page. The beautiful thing about this deliverance is Isaiah is pointing to a deliverance that includes more than the Jewish people. While he would deliver those people under judgment, the deliverance would not be theirs alone. The coming king that is later described is also for the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Jesus would not come simply to deliver the Jewish nation, but also that all who believe would inherit eternal life. You remember John three sixteen: For whosoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. As far back as Isaiah, God is showing that Jesus is the savior of the world, not one specific group of people. Now the Israelites are still God's people. And he is going to do, when this whole thing wraps up, read the book of Revelation, when this whole thing wraps up, he's going to put tons of pressure on the Jewish people, just like he does us, just like he does individuals, just like he does when he, when he wants to get something through to you, when he wants to make you a better person, what happens? The pressure comes on, it comes on. And this past couple of weeks, I was like, Aah! and he's like, I'm trying to get you to stop being selfish. And I'm like, I like it. And when this whole thing culminates at the end, there'll be a massive amount of pressure on the Jewish people to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And they will. And they will. But the beautiful thing is, it's not just that. It's the land beyond, Isaiah points to. He says, for the whole people, for everyone, Jesus is coming. Then he makes this 
Beautiful picture, the land who walked in darkness have seen. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has shown, light has shown. Jesus is a fulfillment of verse two. And he actually declares this in John chapter eight. If you read through the book of John, the one of the four gospels, John has this theme of Jesus being the light. And then in turn, us being the light come as being full of him. So he has a theme of Jesus being the light of the world. Matter of fact, in John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus in John chapter eight is proclaiming he is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter nine. He's saying, he's saying a great light has come into the world. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm that light. I'm that light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And it's exactly what Isaiah or Isaiah was pointing to so many years ago. John chapter one, verse five. He talks about at the beginning, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John chapter three, verse 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Somebody say, amen. You know, it's easier to steal a car at night. Uh, not from experience. I'm just letting you know. I've read a lot of stuff. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that works have been carried out in God. Now, okay, so here's how light works. You do realize that darkness is not a thing. It's just the absence of something. True? Okay, darkness, if, if we turned all the lights off in this room, darkness is not something, it's the absence of the light. And so what Jesus is saying is the world was in darkness because of sin. And he said, I came, I'm the light of the world. So when he came, he brought the light to the world. Now we know after reading the New Testament, that the whole world did not accept him. Actually, his own people did not even accept him. And so what happens is the light comes in the world, but, um, but you do realize just because the light comes in the world, you don't have to accept the light. You can walk away from the light. Amen? Um, because the light we're going to talk about tonight at our candlelight service does some crazy stuff. The light reveals things, doesn't it? I, um, I'm getting a little older. Now, to some of you, I'm too old, and to some of you, I'm too young. Because I'm in the middle. But here's what I found out. I started wearing glasses to read. Because anything two feet, uh, closer than two feet to my face, I can't see anymore. But I also noticed something else that happened to me as far as vision. And that is, I could put reading glasses on, but if it's, but if it's kind of dim in the room, I still can't read it. Anybody, anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, I started thinking about that a little bit. I started thinking about, if I don't have enough light, I can't understand what's going on. Now, I could read. I'm pretty good at it. I, I can put glasses on to correct my vision. I can, I can, um. I can know where everything is, uh, is in my house, except at Christmas, man. We move stuff around at Christmas for some reason. I don't know. Um, I can know. But the problem is I still need the light to reveal what I'm supposed to be seeing. And I'll go back to the whole selfishness thing. When I was thinking about it in my own mind, everything I was doing made sense. Now, now here's the problem. Then I asked God to shine some light on it. And as soon as the lights popped on, it didn't make sense. Anybody ever played a game in the dark that seemed like it made sense in the dark, what you were doing. And then when they flipped the lights on, you were a little bit embarrassed. 
Yeah. Um, now, this is different now because we have the VR things. Anybody ever played, any adults in here ever put those VR things on? Any? Do you have video of it? It's not the coolest thing you've ever done. Trust me. And you probably wish the lights weren't on when you were doing it. But because you couldn't see outside of the realm of what you were in, because you were locked in to one thing and there, no, there was no light outside that you could, you can't perceive anything outside of yourself. Because you can't perceive anything. The, the only light you have is a light right in front of you and it's your light and it's, it's the way you want to do it and it's, it's not that bright. And, and so you're flailing around and everybody outside of your little world is making fun of you. And they're going, what in the world are they doing? And you're like, I'm winning. <laughs> Clearly on the outside, you're not. And that's what the spirit of God does for us. That's what light coming in the world does for us. Before Jesus, we were walking around with our own little VR headsets and we're just doing our little thing and we look like we're winning. We're like, yeah, I'm conquering the world. And everybody's going, no, you're selfish. No, you only think about you. No, matter of fact, you come in the room and you flail your arms around and you impact everybody in the room because all you have is this. And the beautiful thing about Jesus coming to the world is he said, I can take that off of you and I can illuminate the whole thing. I can make your understanding bigger than just yourself. I can teach you what my will done on earth as it is in heaven looks like because it's actually perfect. And so Isaiah, all these years ago, is saying, hey, listen, when he comes into the world, he lights up everything. And let me warn you up front, some people aren't going to like that. Jesus comes around in John chapter 8 and says, I'm the light of the world, but I need to let you know, some people don't want beyond this little thing lit up. Because it's inconvenient. Come on, isn't it inconvenient? Can we just be honest and transparent? It, it hurts a little bit. When you find out for the 8,000th time, you're not right. It hurts a little bit, but it's for our good. Amen. It's better than stumbling around in the dark because we don't stumble by ourselves. We don't stumble by ourselves. We've got families and we got friends and we got coworkers and we stumble, we're stumbling around and it impacts everybody around us. So there's no reason to now. Isaiah said a great light has shown. Light and darkness never goes unnoticed, but it can be rejected. Isaiah is pointing to Jesus coming into the world and ultimately setting up his kingdom. We, however, live in an age where the light is evident, but not accepted. People reject the light every day for selfish reasons, really. People reject the light every day. That's why when you read Paul's writing and, and James and, and people like that in the New Testament where they say, hey, reject the things of this culture, reject all the things and embrace the things of God. Because when you embrace the things of God, you're actually flipping all the lights on. You know what the beautiful thing about this is? Um, I remember when the kids were growing up, I was the light Nazi. This is before LED lights. All you parents that have LED lights now and little kids, you're just like, leave them on, it doesn't matter. There's 10 million hours on that light. It'll last forever. It'll last till Jesus comes back. And it'll only burn three cents of electricity. Well, back in the day, when a light on cost you something, I would go through the house and be like, does anybody here know how to turn a light off? Just, you know, flipping them out, flipping them out, flipping them out, flipping them out. And um, now you realize... Now you realize that he can keep them on. You don't have to manage it. The beautiful thing is if you let him turn the light on and leave it on, it's not yours to manage. It's just yours to respond to. It's just yours to respond to. You're not managing the source of power. You're not managing how much it costs. You're just managing, you're just managing, Lord, you've lit this up in my life and now I'm responding to it. That's it. That's it. So for you budget crunchers, God's like can stay on all the time. You don't, you don't have to manage it. It can stay on. And so you're just constantly allowing it to shine on you and saying, Lord, revealing me, revealing me, revealing me, revealing me. Are you following me? 
Now here's something, another beautiful thing about this prophetic poem. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, verse 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. All right, now if you just read over that, what does that even mean? As in the day of Midian. Now anybody remember a name Gideon? Anybody remember that name, Gideon? Okay, if you go all the way back to the book of Judges, you find a man named Gideon who finds himself in this precarious thing. The Midianites are, are kind of running the place and Gideon is um, hiding out someplace doing something that you wouldn't ordinarily do where he's doing it. So he's threshing wheat in a wine press area and it's not really where you would do that, but he's scared. God comes to him and says, hey, mighty warrior. And he's like, ah, I don't think you're talking to me. So he says, basically, I want you to lead the people. We're going to defeat the Midians. Gideon is emotionally unprepared, mentally unprepared. There's nothing about him that would indicate mighty warrior, but God's called him anyway. Anybody ever felt like that? So God calls him. So what's the first thing Gideon does? He goes and rounds up 30 some thousand troops. That makes sense to me. Does it make sense to you? I'm a little insufficient, so I'm going to get as many people around me as possible. So he gathers all kinds of people around him. That's why when we're inefficient, we want more followers. That's a whole other sermon for the beginning of the year. But so what happens, he gathers as many people around him as he can get. And God says, no, that's too many people. We're going to have to cut them back a little bit, Gideon. So I don't know, what would you say if we had to... Um, if we had to riff some people in the military, you know what I'm saying? It'd be like, okay, we'll cut it back to 15,000. Let me go with 15. Well, the Midianite army was like more than 130,000. So you're still in a deficiency. But God says, no, he cuts it all the way back to 300. And this becomes a joke. True? So he cuts it all the way back to 300. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I don't even want you to fight. Okay, well, let me get this clear, Lord. I started out with a vastly undersized force that you cut down to a joke. And now we got 300 and now you don't even want us to, you want us to go blow horns and bang pots and do all this weird stuff. And God's like, yeah, we're going to try that. So they do. And the Midianite army kills themselves. Go back and read it. So Isaiah is saying he's going to deliver like he did in Midian. Now you go, I still don't know what you're talking about. When Jesus came, I don't think he asked anybody on the planet if he could come. When he went to the cross, he didn't say, I need your help to go to the cross. When he rose again on the third day, there was nobody standing at the tomb going, Jesus, come forth. God delivered by his own power, on his own time, by his own will, by his own voice, by his own creation, he delivered. Now you say, Isaiah goes, just the way he did it in Midian, he will do it again. So in Midian, he used the absurdity. Somebody who was unbelievably weak, there was no way Gideon was going to pull it off, and God basically did it by himself. Are you following? And he's saying, when the Savior comes, God will be doing it by himself again. By the way, you, the whole thing we've been talking about is God sending his son. He didn't pick anybody that was already here. God did it himself. When he decided to save us, he did it all on his own. Now that should give some of you, some of you it will... It will be a freeing thing and others, it will be uh, an anxiety inducing thing. How many feel free that God did it on, your own, on, on his own? Raise your hand. This is not good or bad, just you feel free. You're the type of person like, man, I'm, I'm glad God took care of it. Whew. I'm glad he took care of it. The rest of you are going, I mean, he could use my help. And we've been working towards saving ourselves ever since. 
And every Christmas that comes around, the same thing. We just toil trying to be good enough. We just, we just try to put it in. And we're like, God, this year, I was a little better than I was last year. Maybe a little less coal and maybe a little more green. That was a joke. God, but look at what I did over here. Look at what I did over here. Look at how I did this. Look at how I managed the family. Look at how I managed my job. Look at how I did this. Look at how I was better. Look at how I didn't, I didn't flip out on people this year nearly as much as I did last year. Look, I can point to all these successes. I can point to all this stuff that just worked out this year. And I, I read my Bible more this year. I, call, I talked to you more this year. And Isaiah is reminding us that just like Midian, he did it. He did it. So if you're like me, I like to stack up successes that I can bring to God like a cat who brings in a dead bird and lays it on your porch. And just like we do with the cat, what are you doing? I don't need that. Every time I come to God and I go, look at all the stuff I've done. He goes, Chris, what are you doing? You know, I don't need that to save you. You know, I don't need that to make you whole. You know, I don't need that to redeem you. You know, I don't need that. I remember what I did with Gideon. And I go, but Lord, I'm smarter than him. I'll do the same thing for you, Chris. So I envy some of you that sit here and go, I'm just glad he did it. For the rest of us that are, that are kind of like, project or like, oh, we got to get it done for the kingdom. He's got to remind me daily, just like I did it in Midian, I'll do it for you. I can save you without you. And I have to pray continually, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, your will, your will, your will, your will on earth as it is in heaven. That's the way he taught me to pray, Lord, your will, not your will combined with mine to make a little improvement on it. Your will. And church, this is a really important part of this prophecy that God did not need our help. Amen? He doesn't need our improvement on the cross. He doesn't need our improvement on Christmas. He doesn't need our improvement on anything. He said, this is the way I'm doing it and it's perfect. And you can rest in that. And you can rest in that. The beautiful thing is, This is the way God operates. And sometimes, listen to me, if you're in the need of deliverance right now, listen to me close. The beautiful thing about God's deliverance is, and Beth and I have experienced this in our own lives, is oftentimes it comes out of the blue without your effort. There's no part of Isaiah's prophecy where it says, where it says, hey, when you guys got it together, when you guys started doing the right thing, when you guys started making it happen, then God liked you more, and so he sent Jesus. No, 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 no. The New Testament says in the fullness of time, he sent his son. That it didn't have anything to do with how good we were. While we were sinners, he died for us. And so we have to remind ourselves it's a sophisticated 21st century church that our sophistication doesn't draw God to us, our surrender does. Our sophistication, our, our buildings, our, our coolness, our whatever you want to add on to it, our accomplishments, aren't the thing that draws God to us. God decided that he would save us in spite of all that stuff. In spite of us trying, he would send Jesus. And Isaiah is pointing to that. He doesn't need our help. Just like in the days of Midian. With a broke guy named Gideon. That's not, I wasn't trying to rhyme there, but it worked. He's going to save us the same way. God alone is our deliverer and we will see Jesus reign with power when he establishes his kingdom. This is a beautiful thing. The last thing he points to as far as the way this deliverance will happen. It will define an end to all war. Now, it's been a long time since as Americans, we could look back and see just a season where we, we weren't embroiled in some type of conflict. 
That wears on you, doesn't it? You don't even think about it anymore. You flip on the news and somebody's bombing somebody and America's bombing somebody and we're getting, somebody's bombing us. Bases all over the world getting attacked. And you think, God, will this ever stop? When will we as people just stop killing each other? Isaiah chapter nine, verse five, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah's painting the picture there of Jesus reigning forever and peace beyond anything we can ever understand. Isaiah is pointing to the boot of the Assyrian. It's a classic example of what war, of the, of the, of the picture of war, the Assyrian boot that the, that the Jewish people were so afraid of at this point in time because they were subject, well, they were becoming subject to them. Later on, it will be the boot of the Babylonians and it would be, they would be ruled and, and exiled. But Isaiah is pointing to a time in human history where no one, where there will be no war, there will be no killing, there will be a perfect peace from a perfect Savior. Amen? There hasn't been a time like that since Isaiah that this has ever been true. But I can assure you the Bible is clear. When Jesus comes again to rule and reign, there will be no war. You won't have to look over your shoulder. There won't be anybody to steal your wallet. There won't be anybody to steal your car. There won't be anybody to break into your house. You can leave your house unlocked. The people that make door locks will go out of business. About 75% of the world puts walls up around anything valuable. Now we, we live in America where you might put a chain link fence up, but you're not building a wall around your house. But in most of the places I travel, even, even Western countries, you find out they got bars on the windows and walls if they can build them. Can you imagine a time where none of that is necessary. You never have to second guess somebody's motive. You never have to worry. You never have to. That is what Isaiah is describing. When Jesus rules and reigns forever, this is the story of Christmas that God sent him to show us what it looks like. And he is coming again. Isaiah ends this poem with a beautiful section of of names for this coming ruler. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now in some translations, in the ESV, this is four names. In other translations, this is five names. I don't think it matters. In some translations, they say wonderful, comma, counselor, comma. But in the ESV, it says wonderful counselor. So for those of you that are English majors, I just wanted to point it out. So either he's wonderful and a counselor or he's a wonderful counselor. Either way, it's a pretty good name. A wonderful counselor means there's none like him. And by the way, when God came to Moses and Moses, and Moses said, God, or he said, what's your name? He said, I am. And, and he, he gives him a name to call him by. And do you know from that point forward, they never, they weren't allowed to actually say his name out loud. It was too wonderful for humans to utter on their lips. And now, now it's whatever, now it's a slang word. But it was pointing to the idea that there is none like him. This isn't just an improved human. This is God. He's our counselor. His wisdom is perfect and beyond our understanding. And I want to translate this for you this way. I want, to, I want to say it this way so you can understand it. He's a wonderful counselor. His wisdom is perfect. And I need you to understand this. There's no risk in him. There's no risk in him. Come on, I, I've, been, I've been going to a counselor every now and then. And um, as much as he can tolerate. And, um, and have, you ever, have you ever been in a counseling session and you went, mm, I don't know if that's true. 
Hey, buddy, why don't you come and live in my house for six weeks? And then you'll just your opinion. No, have you ever thought about that? Anybody went to somebody? How about a mechanic? You went to a mechanic and, you, and they said, well, you need a new motor. And you went, really? I drove here. And so we're always questioning, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? You go to a professional, you go, is it true? Is it true? I want to tell you that there, there, Jesus coming, the light of the world has revealed to us his amazing purpose, his amazing plan and who he is. And Isaiah describes him as wonderful counselor. And that means his wisdom is perfect and there is no risk. There's no downside. There's no, I don't know if I should do this, Lord. No, he is, his will for you is always perfect and right. So that's why when Jesus taught us, taught the disciples to pray, he said, pray like this, pray. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy, on. Why would we pray that? Because there's no risk in his will. Now you might say, oh, there's a ton of risk in his will. No, 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 no. You, you mix it up. You mix it up. You mix it up. Remember, now you're just looking with the light that's right around you. Because I don't know anybody, including myself, that has got to the end of their life and said, I trusted him. They went, probably shouldn't have done that. No, because once you trust him and he lights up the stuff in front of you, you go, oh, there's no risk in this. He, he is the one that's making this happen. There's no risk in it. You can look at your neighbor and say, you can trust him right now. Look at your neighbor. I know you don't want to. Tell him, I know you don't want to, but you can. You might not want to, but you can. And I'm glad Isaiah started with that wonderful counselor. There's no risk in him. You can trust him this morning. Then he goes on, he says, mighty God, there's no one above him. Philippians chapter two, verse nine through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under heaven. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah called him mighty God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. A light has come into the world. A a child has been given to us. What are we going to call him? Wonderful counselor and mighty God. There's no risk in him and there's no one above him. There's no one else to go to get a second opinion. If you're praying the will of God and he gives it to you, don't say, I'm going to check with somebody else on this. There is no one else. There's no one like him. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's it. That's it. Isaiah gives him another name, Everlasting Father. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's saying his kingdom will never end. There's not a time when he comes the second time, there's not a time after that that we got to worry about it breaking up. Somebody else coming along. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. You say, Chris, why are you reading so much from Revelation? Why are you reading so much about the end? We're back at the beginning. Or with the birth of Jesus, because the birth of Jesus points to his coming. The birth of Jesus points to his promise to return to us. He is coming and his rule, as Isaiah said, will never end. There'll be no end to it. Forevermore, he says. And then the last, the last title he gives in the band is going to come up. Prince of Peace. Church, Jesus is the Prince of Peace today, tomorrow, in 10 years, in 20 years, 100 years, and if he tarries in another 1,000 years. And he will ultimately be the Prince of Peace forever. 
We live in a culture that doesn't need more money, that doesn't need anything to be easier, but we do need peace. We need peace in our minds. We need peace in our hearts, peace in our families, peace in our schools. Church, we need the peace of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He said, we were once in battle with God. We were once away from God. We were once in darkness. But the world has seen a marvelous light and Jesus has come. And he is our peace. He has reconciled us to God. And so now there's no hostility between us and God. And now, because of that, now we can have peace in our minds. Now we can have peace in our hearts. Come on, I thought you'd be more excited about that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses, somebody help me with this, all understanding. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Why did he put it in there like that? Because he knew it wouldn't make sense. If you back up a little bit in this section he wrote to the Philippians, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every circumstance with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, bring your requests to God. And then it says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. So even before he meets the need in your family, you can be in peace about it. He didn't say, he didn't say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, give your requests to God and the peace of God. He didn't, he, he said that he didn't say, and when he fulfills your request, then you can be at rest. No, he says the thing that passes understanding is even before you get your request filled, he could put you at rest. Because he's the wonderful counselor. He's the one there's no risk in. So I'm not praying. I'm not praying just to get it. I'm praying to be peace about it before I get it. And I could help 50 people in here right now if you would embrace that. Because the most anxiousness that we feel as humans is the space between asking and receiving. Don't you remember the Sears catalog? Some of you are like, catalog? Remember, those crazy people put that thing out in July. And so every kid would gather around it and he'd flip through it and he'd be like, mom, dad. And they're like, stop looking at that thing, kid. And you'd be anxious from July to December 25th. Am I going to get it? Am I going to get it? You'd... you'd dog ear the pages you'd circle it you'd you'd do all the thing rip the page out put it on your parents bedroom door you're like this is it and then you might not even get it and then you're like there was no pages with socks circled so here's a problem anxiety happens in us between what we ask for and the fulfillment of it and Paul says, he gives you peace that passes understanding because you can be at rest in the middle. So picture this, between God promising to return the second time and him coming the second time, we can be at peace. So until the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter nine, until the fulfillment of no more war, until the fulfillment of, of no more anxiety, until all that fulfillment, what is he telling us? He's the Prince of Peace. He's the peace. He's, he's our peace. Second Thessalonians says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. So Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and said, hey, the God, God is peace and Jesus is peace and he can give you peace at all times in every way. So listen to me. It's Christmas Eve more than ever before. I don't know, the turkey will turn out tomorrow. I have no idea. Most of you, it will. Some of you, it's going to be horrific. I watched the movie with Chevy Chase. I know how it turns out. Some of you will cook it too long. Some of your in-laws are going to come over, not mine, but some of your in-laws are going to come over and ruin it. 
Some of you, the neighbor's going to come over and you're like, really? Some of you, your kids are going to come home. (laughs) And that's going to be a joyous celebration. But some of you have in your mind already wrapped up the 150 things that Christmas should be tomorrow morning. And you're stressed out about it. And you're worried about it. And then you're worried about that. I get enough and did I, am I going to provide enough and I'm going to do enough? And is it going to be great? And God is telling you today, I didn't come for that. I came because I'm the Prince of Peace. And it's Sunday morning, Christmas Eve at around 10, 15, God is saying, when it doesn't make sense, when everybody else is all worked up about this, I'm here to give you peace. There's a difference between what you ask and when you receive, and I just want you to be at peace in the middle. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Amen. Those are his names, and that's what he came to give us. Stand to your feet. So the key is that you make room today for that savior. Not the one that you concocted in your head, but that one. And so I'd like to pray for you today, for you to be able to do that. Make room for that Savior. Make room for the soon coming King. Make room for wisdom. Make room. Make room for there's no one like him. Make room for him forever. Make room for his peace this morning. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you've given us a clear picture of what to expect and there is no disappointment. There's no disappointment. He is perfect in every way and today we embrace Him. We embrace Jesus. The author of our faith, the finisher of our faith, the one who came, lived, and died and rose again for us. And we thank you for that. And Lord, our response to you is to trust you and receive your peace this morning. To trust you and receive your peace. And we thank you for it. We thank you and we give you praise for it, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, could you thank